The Great North Air Ambulance Service, GNAS, brings pioneering pre-hospital care direct to the emergency scene, rescuing hundreds of severely injured or ill patients every year across Cumbria, the North East and North Yorkshire, covering some 8,000 square miles. You might be surprised to know, however, that their service is not NHS funded and relies solely on donations to keep their services running. A couple of quick facts. In 2019, there were 1,640 helicopter call-outs. That's almost five per day average. And the cost of this overall service was £5.3 million. So it's no surprise that in 2020, the h staff voted to have GNAS as their sponsored charity for the year. Due to COVID restrictions, all the big events we had planned obviously were shelved, but we've managed to collect over 1,388 kilograms of recycled bags, consisting of unwanted clothes, bedding and curtains, auctioned sheep through the ring to raise money, sheep very kindly donated by a very kind farmer, and more recently held a group-wide Let's Brew for the Crew, hope you like the title, Coffee Morning, which we think has raised approximately £500. So despite restrictions, which so far this year, we think we have achieved over £5,000. Although we might recognise the distinctive green and white livery of the Great North Air Ambulance Helicopter when it flies over, we have no idea who the pilot is, so we thought it would be really interesting to talk to one of them today to find out what a day in the life of a helicopter pilot is really like. Marketing Manager working for the H&H Group based in Carlisle, Cumbria, and I'm delighted to welcome Phil Lambert, who currently works as one of the seven helicopter pilots and is based at Langwathby near Penrith. We welcome Phil and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. So, hello Phil, how are you? Hello Nina, yeah I'm uh, very good thank you and uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you and uh, everyone at the H&H Group. You're very welcome. I think we're honoured to talk to you. I think that's more than the right <laughs> way around. <laughs> so starting off, an obvious question. How long have you worked with GNAS and um, is your role full-time? Uh, yeah, I'm one of the, well, I'm the full-time pilot based at Langwathby uh, near Penrith. And I've worked for the charity for eight years now. Gosh, that's quite a long time, isn't it? So what was your background uh, yeah. before? Yeah, prior hmm. to... Prior to that, I was uh, I was in the army for twenty two years. Um, so, uh, so yeah, this is this is what I do now, and I'm very lucky. Um, were you a soldier and a pilot, or um, always a helicopter pilot, or what were you when you were in the army? Well, it's I mean, it's, it's quite a long story, really. I was um, I, before I even joined the army, I was a builder, um, and one of my friends. Um, had been to the careers office and spoken to the Army Air Corps careers advisor who said that you could join the Army and then subsequently apply for pilot selection. Um, although it, it is quite protracted if you do it through a sort of non-commissioned route. 
um, without any qualifications. So, so that sort of kind of got me interested and, and that's uh, what I eventually did. So I joined up when I was 19 um, and then I was a soldier, ground soldier for, I think it was just under 10 years um, and I'd applied for the pilot's course. So I started the pilot's course about my 10 year point um, and then very luckily I managed to jump through all the sort of hoops that, that the army presented and uh, got my sort of flying qualification and wings about two years after I started the course. Gosh, that sounds uh, very interesting. And where did you, uh, where were you stationed? All over or specific places? Um, yeah, all over the place really. I, when I, I first joined the army, I went uh, straight to Germany, which again sort of, um, I remember watching the, the programme with my mum years and years ago, Alveda Zane Petter, I, I doubt there's many people remember it, but uh, I always thought it'd be quite interesting to, uh, to, to go and live in Germany. Um, and that tied in with the, the sort of army type thing. And at the, at, the, at the time it was all, the military was very Cold War focused. So everyone got posted to Germany. So initially I went to Germany, spent about four or five years there. And then from there, um, as, as the sort of German side of things drew down back to the UK, but I served all over the world, really, um, spent over six years in Northern Ireland, um, worked in Canada, America, and then the operational sort of tours, um, Bosnia, uh, I was actually in the first Gulf War, then second sort of Iraq. And then more lately, sort of Afghanistan as well, uh, did a couple of tours out there. So all over the place, really. Um, and I finished my sort of flying career and military career uh, based at Dishworth in North Yorkshire. Uh, which, and that was it. I got out after that. So, so you come back to Cumbria for a bit of a more sedate, well, probably way of living at home, but probably not when you're in a, in a helicopter, more of which we'll probably get to in a minute. Yeah. Um, you a different kind of helicopter to the one you fly now though I think for the techie listener out there what sort of aircraft do you fly and what sort of speeds is the aircraft capable of etc I think it would have been a different kind of helicopter now to the ones you flew in Bosnia uh, yeah the um, in the military I flew Lynx helicopters and a training aircraft called Squirrel um, right. and then for GNAS I my sort of permanent aircraft that I fly is a Dauphin AS365 and then the charity have some N2s which is the, the sort of a, a slightly older version um, and then they've just very recently brought into service uh, an N3 plus uh, which is the latest version and naturally the last version of the Dauphin. So a very similar aircraft but uh, the newer aircraft that they bought has just got a lot more capability in terms of power and the avionics um, and particularly the autopilot system. All oh, right, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the autopilot on the new aircraft is probably the biggest sort of change for us. It's, um, again, being if, if for your techie listeners, it's a, a four-axis autopilot, so it can control its uh, heading, its height, um, and also its speed. Um, so in all sort of three dimensions, really. Um, so we can pre-program or select while we're flying the aircraft what we want it to do and then it's all pretty much hands-free um, even down to the aircraft of flight itself to an airport and carry out a procedural approach down to 
a sort of a predetermined height which is for precision about 200 feet um, all completely hands-off uh, which allows us as single uh, pilot um, qualification just gives us that bit more capacity to concentrate on managing the flight itself rather than hands-on flying. Gosh that sounds absolutely amazing you've always got like a virtual second pair of hands then. Well yeah I mean I, I, I don't like to to, uh, to to tell too many people but actually the aircraft's a lot better at flying itself than uh, when it lets me have my hands on so. I'm not sure I'm not sure that's true Phil. <laughs> Okay, um, we've had many chats here at h, &H about the amazing service um, that the GNAS provide. Um, but it has crossed our minds as to how do you get calls into action and what goes on behind the scenes to make this happen. I mean, what do you and your team have to assess to take the decision that you fly out with your helicopter versus the local ambulance or doctor attending the scene? How does, what, what happens to, behind the scenes to make this work? Yeah, so first of all, we uh, generally speaking, we cover a 12-hour shift period. Um, so more often than not, it's from 8 in the morning till 8 at night. So we'll, we'll come into work and, and sort of rush around getting the aircraft ready, uh, getting all the equipment checks and such like done, the checks on the aircraft, um, so that we're ready to go from 8 o'clock. Um, as you alluded to earlier, we, we sort of cover quite a large area, um, which in Compasses sort of all of Cumbria, all of the sort of northeast, and then South Yorkshire as well. Uh, and we do cover parts of Lancashire as well, so it's, it's a huge area. Um, but the two main ambulance areas within there are uh, Northwest Ambulance Service and Northeast Ambulance Service. So, in terms of the mechanics of us going to a job, um, let's say, for instance, somebody came across a road traffic collision, um, they would phone 999, uh, depending on where it was, let's, let's say it was on the M6, that would go through to Northwest Ambulance Control. And then within Northwest Ambulance Control, they have a dedicated air desk that sort of triage the calls to see whether or not it's something that would benefit from um, us as HEMS, so the Helicopter Emergency Medical Service and the team that we bring with the paramedic and the doctor and also the speed uh, and equipment that comes with that. Um, so if they then decide that that's something that they think would be good for us, they speak to our air desk, which controls um, both our operational aircraft on a daily basis. Um, and then if they agree that it's something that we could go to, we're tasked. And although that sounds relatively protracted from, from telephone call to the aircraft lifting can, can realistically be a minute or two. And then from the phone ringing on our base, uh, we aim to be in the air in less than five minutes. Gosh, that is amazing, isn't it? Um, how joined up it is. <clears throat> Thank goodness for technology. Um, so is there, is there a typical day or is every day absolutely different? Obviously, you start at eight o'clock, so that's that's a that's a given. So you come in at eight o'clock. So what does a typical day look like? Well, again, we'll sort of uh, yeah. First thing, we'll come into work, uh, rush around, definitely get coffee on. Uh, that's a, that's a, a given every day. Um, but get the aircraft ready, uh, and then we do both an aviation and a medical brief. Um, so the aviation brief covers, uh, again, saying that because we've got to lift within the sort of five minute phone call to, to airborne time, 
what we try to do is look at our whole operating area in the morning um, and preempt what we may face, predominantly in terms of weather, because um, we've got the Cumbrian Mountains, obviously, the Pennine Ridge up into the Cheviots. Um, so the weather is, is just in Cumbria, the weather's very changeable, but across that whole area, it can be you know, glorious sunshine on one side, torrential rain on the other. So what we try to do is build up a picture of what we may face from an aviation point of view. Um, and then there's other bits and pieces that we look at as well. So um, things like if there's military aircraft or military exercises, so that we can deconflict with those um, for, for safety in the air. So we try and build up this sort of big picture of what's going to affect us during the day. And then we do the medical sort of briefing as well, which makes sure that if there's been any changes to policy or procedures, that the whole team uh, is completely up to date. And then realistically, we, we just then sit there and wait for the phone call. Um, in terms of the, the jobs themselves are, are so varied and because of the size of the area that we cover, um, you, can, you can be going to anything really. And if I'm honest, from an aviation point of view, that's, that's quite exciting and it's a, a really enjoyable part of the job. So what sort of emergency trips do you make and, and uh, what sort of length are they? You know, is it, uh, do they vary? I think the I think the the closest call we've ever gone to was actually probably about a mile and a half from our base, um, possibly even less. Um, and with hindsight, we probably would have been better just carrying the bags down the road. But when we initially got the call, when we initially got the call, um, we were just given a very loose location, so we didn't have the the, the grid, um, the, the sort of system that we get past to let us know exactly what it what where we're going to. So we took off and it wasn't until we were airborne, we, we saw that we were only about a mile away from the job. Um, so that's probably the closest. Then in terms of the, 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 the sort of furthest area that we'll perhaps fly to, we cover up to uh, the Scottish border in the northeast, so up as far as uh, Berwick-upon-Tweed, um, right. which in, in terms of flying only takes us about 30 minutes on a still wind day. All right, okay. So you can get across the area really, really quickly then. And what sort of emergency trips do you make? I imagine they're very varied. They can be anything, I presume. Well, I suppose for um, HEMS, you know, helicopter emergency uh, medicine, we, the, the sort of, our mantra is that we take the hospital to the patient. So we're, we're trying to go to jobs. Uh, again, our task, our air desk is, is trying to send us to jobs where someone will benefit from the sort of treatments and interventions that could be provided in a hospital, but, but taken to them, so taken to the patient rather than the patient to the hospital. So, we obviously, so we're obviously looking at things like uh, trauma, so people injured in road traffic accidents, uh, people being hurt on sort of recreational activities, uh, certainly something we do quite frequently in the, in the Lake District with people walking and falling, um, but, but more serious falls perhaps, uh, mountain biking, horses, motorbikes. So that's the sort of trauma side of things. Um, although we do, that does sort of vary quite considerably. And then there's the sort of medical um, type issues that we go to as well, predominantly cardiac arrests, uh, strokes, that sort of thing. Um, I'm, I'm not 
medically trained as such. I, I've just sort of picked this up uh, from operating with the crew for the for the amount of time I've been working there, really. <laughs> right, okay. I presume the landing location is probably the most challenging aspect of, of your part in the rescue and recovery plan, especially depending on the weather conditions. Is that, is that right? I think that's probably the, the, the harder part of the job um, is, is knowing where to land safely, but perhaps knowing when it's not going to be safe. Um, certainly in the, you know, in the mountains and the fells in Cumbria, um, it can be very challenging, uh, particularly with uh, sort of cloud and, and low cloud and visibility uh, due to rain or, or snow even. Uh, that's one thing, but but particularly when it gets windy, um, it becomes very turbulent, uh, and different sides of the, the fells have different turbulent conditions. So that's something that's always in the back of my mind as a pilot, as to out you know sort of uh, weighing up the risks against the rewards really, and, and obviously the the safety of the aircraft and the team that I carry is is the utmost. Sort of priority um so it can be very difficult um however if if those sort of things are acceptable then the next uh thing for me to look at is where we're actually going to land the aircraft um in terms in terms of size uh we need roughly well it's the, the aircraft from from the front to or the, the tips at the front to the back is about 30 feet um, and we need double that area so about 60 feet and then squared so so roughly the size of a uh, sort of two tennis courts uh, put together. So we need that sort of area to land in. Um, and then it just needs to be flat enough and, and also firm enough because uh, it been, can be quite boggy in the lakes as well. Uh, with the aircraft having wheels, um, it, it can sink in at times. So we have procedures that sort of mitigate that as well, where a crew member will make sure that we're not sinking too much before we put all the weight of the aircraft onto the wheels. So it's very challenging, but, uh, it, you know, again, that's, that's something that was, uh, you know, bread and butter really for me in the in the military uh, is what I was trained to do, and that that challenge is something that I really enjoy about the job as well. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. What's the trickiest situation you found yourself in recently, Phil? Um, recently, uh, ooh, I think um, we we did a job probably about a month or so ago um, near Skidor. Uh, just near Keswick uh, and the wind was was very tricky to land and we couldn't actually get to the patient um, because of the surface and, and the area they were at but but we managed to sort of uh, come up with solutions to get close enough and preferably we would always land above a patient um, so that the crew can walk down with the equipment um, but but all that I mean it's very rare that we get a, a you know unfortunately people don't injure themselves on football pitches all the time they, they always they always tend to hurt themselves where it's really We're tricky. Halfway for down that. a mountain, I presume. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't rely on the public for anything, can you? <laughs> no, no, indeed. But it uh, yeah, it makes it makes the job fun, challenging. Challenging, yeah. Um, do you always fly the same helicopter? And if so, does your helicopter have an affectionate name, like some people call their cars? I mean, my Golf GTI is called William, just because the number plate starts WM. Not very original, I know, but you know. Do they? Does so? Do you have a name, affectionate name for your helicopter? Or? 
Well, it's, it's nothing uh, quite as quite as exciting as William. We um, all the aircraft have a registration that uh, begins with a, a G, Golf, uh, to say that they're registered in the UK. Um, and then the the only difference in the registrations is the last two letters. So the the charity's actually got four aircraft at the moment, only two of which fly at any one time. Um, and they're, they're AB, uh, sorry, AA, AB, AC, and AD. So uh, kind of boring, um, but we refer to them by their, their last two letters. So the, the aircraft that's ref, um, based at Penrith all the time is AB, uh, and that on the tail has got written Pride of Cumbria. And okay. then the, and yeah, and then the new aircraft that's just been introduced to Teesside is AD, uh, and that's Guardian of the North 2. But, uh, but yeah, on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, it'd just be yeah, AB. Should perhaps, you could perhaps, uh, we should perhaps uh, canvas people and come up with a better name. <laughs> like Gertrude or Jerry or something. Yeah, you've got, you've got to be, I suppose you've got to be careful of what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> and um, are, are you responsible for your own pre-flight checks and, and, and that kind of thing? Or? From a or servicing point of view, the... Um, we do a we do a daily sort of pre-flight service, and then the the aircraft itself is serviced by um, the aviation company at Leeds called MultiFlight, uh, and they come up to the bases every month or every twenty five flying hours. Uh, but other than that, we we do the servicing ourselves, which I guess is a little bit like if you, you were going to check the oils and and bits and pieces on your car. That that's the sort of thing we do on a daily basis. Right. Okay. And um, obviously, due to the seriousness of any rescue, um, life often hanging in the balance. Um, what are the crew, or who are the other crew members that you take on board with you when you do go out? Yeah. So we're a three-man team. Um, there's myself as the pilot, and I mean, if I'm brutally honest, I, I just drive. Um, and and when we land on scene, I'm I'm a bit of a gopher. I fetch and carry. Because uh, because my job is is to deliver the people that really do the the work for our patients. So we have a, a doctor and a paramedic. Uh, our paramedics are full time employed by the charity and uh, trained to uh, dare I say quite a a, a sort of um, a higher level than normal NHS paramedics. Um, and they're very, very skilled, and 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 it's it's amazing to watch both the paramedics and the doctors do their work. Um, not only what they do, but the, but the the way that they do it actually, I th I think it's 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 quite amazing. I mean, I just look after a sort of a, a mechanical object, uh, whereas they're looking after people that's lives sort of depend on their interventions. Um, and yeah, going back to the the, the doctors, predominantly are all uh, consultants either in anaesthetics or pre-hospital care or emergency uh, department sort of specialists. Right, okay, so all, all very highly skilled at what they do, which of course is what you, you do. You, and I think probably you put yourself down a bit there and saying you just you just bury the people there and back, but <laughs> very you're obviously a very good team and you all need each other presumably. But, um, yeah, definitely. I, I, certainly with there only being th three of us, um, you know, when we do arrive on scene, we're quite often we're the first people there. Um, 
so it is. It's, it's a small team, uh, and I guess uh, without me fetching and carrying so much, uh, they, they wouldn't be as quick at, at what they do, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably, due to the pressures you all face daily, you must be quite a close-knit team. Uh, you know, when you get back to the base between rescue missions, you know. Uh, it's it, it's it's surprising, I think, what what you can get used to. I mean, I with my previous background in the military. Um, you know, I've obviously seen bits and pieces, but, um, you know, bits and pieces that perhaps wouldn't, people wouldn't see on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but that said, when I first um, joined the charity, I was genuinely quite worried about uh, how, you know, seeing the impact of, of, of what, what's happened to people would have on me. Um, and what I would say, it's surprising what, what you get used to, really. Um, and, and in the back of certainly my mind is that, uh, you know, what's happened to someone has happened to someone and, and we're just there to, to try and ease that situation and make things better for them. So, so you kind of do get used to things really, but I suppose as, as the pilot, I've always got the option to, to, uh, to tell the crew that I need to do some important helicopter stuff if it's uh, a bit messy. <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> um Without dwelling on the dreaded COVID word too much, as I think we're probably all exhausted with trying to work within the limitations this brings, um, but has how has the COVID pandemic affected what you and your colleagues do now? And, and has this added extra strain on what must be an already stressful job? I think in terms of uh, COVID, certainly uh, at the start of the year and, and when it started to become something that we obviously realised was going to affect us individually um, at work, our colleagues, the way we do business and, and indeed the whole country. We, we were we were sort of finding our feet, really. Um, As we all were, I think. Yeah, I think, well, I think everyone was, uh, you know, whether it was the government or down to an individual level, we, we, we were sort of learning day by day. So initially our approach was that we would um, not actively fly people who were believed to be COVID positive, um, which is, is very tricky to, to sort of determine whether or not um, that, that was the case. Um, and then that quickly evolved into us realising that there was always going to be a need for us to carry patients that had perhaps be, been injured traumatically, um, where there may be a... A sort of a, a potential for, for COVID to be involved but at the same time you know we needed to mitigate the risk and and uh, the, the way we sort of got around it on from an airframe from an aircraft point of view was we we fitted a screen um, at the back of the front two seats that that seals the back of the aircraft off uh, so the patient and the medical crew would be in the back of the aircraft and I'd be sat uh, by myself in the front of the aircraft if we transported a patient um, and then for me in the front, I'd be wearing a mask. Um, and then that allowed the medical team in the back to be wearing full sort of protective equipment, whether it was sort of just from a mask up to full gowns and indeed forced air hoods so that we've got the whole sort of spectrum of, of precautionary measures we can take. And that, that sort of evolved over probably about a month or so, really. Um, and that's what we're what we're continuing to do now. All right. Gosh, I didn't even think that the plastic screens would, would make it into the aircraft as well. I hadn't even thought about that. That is interesting. 
Yeah, because one of the one of the problems is um, that the medical team can can put full uh, a full hood on that has uh, forced air that's filtered, um, but what it doesn't allow for is is communications very easily, um, and and one of my sort of primary roles is communicating with air traffic uh, when we're flying around. So I've got to be able to uh, use the radios and communicate in the aircraft. Now I can do that with a um, with a face mask, um, but but not with the uh, forced air hood. So that's that's one of the reasons that we went down uh, the, the route of putting a screen up and six compartmentalising the aircraft. Right, that's really interesting. I just hadn't thought about that at all. Um, yeah. Um, so on to new frontiers. Uh, despite recent limitations, technology itself never stands still. And um, I was listening on the news recently we might have a new mode of transport soon a new 1050 great horsepower jet suit for those out there who haven't heard about this this suit has been trialed in the lake district and could potentially revolutionize how the team attend the rescue and just to put that great horsepower into perspective my gti is only 245 great horsepower so <laughs> for one person fly in a suit that is 1,050 brake horsepower. I presume that suit is going to be fast. Phil, have you been personally involved in these trials? It looks a bit hair-raising, um, or it might just be fun, especially somebody that's um, on the daredevil side, but it, have, you, have you been in one? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, um, I mean, if we're, if we're playing top trumps, my, uh, my Mondeo is 150 brake horsepower, so I'm, I'm losing considerably. considerably. But... Um, yeah, the, uh, our clinical director, we, we only found out about this. Our clinical director, uh, Andy Mawson, uh, released this to us probably about uh, 10 days, two weeks ago. Uh, oh, so, so, so yeah, it's only about, um, a, a, you know, four or five days before it uh, went to the uh, local and the national and, and indeed international press. Um, so basically, Andy's been working on a project uh, the project with Gravity Industries that uh, have designed a jetpack. Um, and originally, I think at the moment we're, we're certainly in the phase where they're just looking at applications um, as to how this could be used, um, perhaps pre-hospitally. Um, I've not been involved in the trials, um, but having watched the, the footage that they shot in the, in the Langdales and the sort of Pay of the Arc area, um, I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, I, I, I think in terms of in terms of flying, um, it would be the paramedics probably that would do that because I think you know if I was going to fly this uh, sort of jetpack, then you know I could get to the patient and then uh, you know deliver absolutely nothing. <laughs> so it's going to be the yeah, medical guy. Carry the paramedic on your back, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I think if it's something that progresses um, in, in, you know, in, in, at a later stage, then it would probably be uh, paramedics that would perhaps uh, fly, pilot the, the jetpack. Uh, that's, that's kind of um, uh, all I know about it, really. I mean, when, when it was released to us uh, privately within the, the working group, uh, people kind of thought it was a, potentially a, a sort of a, and either very late or very early April Fools, if I'm honest. Um, a bit of a spook. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, Andy's a bit of a joker anyway, so it, it could quite possibly have been that. But I think as, as you look at it, um, uh, GNAS as, as an organisation are, are very innovative. Uh, they're not keen on sort of standing still. They're pushing boundaries, uh, whether it be medical or, or indeed in this sort of new potential a aviation sort of uh, aspect. Um, so whilst I personally think it's something that perhaps might not come in in the next sort of six months, um, I, I think as an organisation to be looking at uh, pushing the boundaries is, is a fantastic thing. Yeah, it certainly made um, uh, good, interesting news for a change and a good break from everything else that's going on in the Yeah, meantime. yeah, definitely. You know, is there actually a G-force when you go up in one of them? Or is it just because it looked really quite smooth the way it went up as, as though there wouldn't be much of a G-force, but... I, I, I I'm, I'm not I'm not sure about G-force. I mean, I think it looks uh, quite dangerous. <laughs> it's um, I mean, you know, if my sort of aviation experience is is uh, certainly at the moment flying the, the helicopters that I fly, and commercially we we commercially legally we we have to have two engines on the aircraft, and uh, the aircraft's capable of flying um, even if one of the aircraft fails. Uh, and as long as we've got the height, should the absolute worst case uh, happen and we lost both engines, then we, we've also got a, an option to auto-rotate the aircraft and, and control our landing. Um, not many of those options look open to uh, a jetpack, although I believe they are looking at possibly uh, looking at parachute systems. But, uh, yeah. Well, hopefully, just sort of stay above about two feet off the ground, and uh, they they might not be too bad. But yeah, they look, they look, yeah, they they look fast though. Um, I, I, I think the I think the speed record was about seventy miles an hour or something like that, which that yeah, fast, must be quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> I know they they did the, the journey up, up was it the Langdales um, in ninety seconds instead of twenty five minutes. So that's going to make an enormous difference if if you can make this mode of transport work. It, it will do, and I think I think one of the operational sort of capability problems is that it, although it's only sort of ninety seconds, perhaps from uh, the bottom of the Langdales up to Pavey Arc, Stickle Town sort of area, um, you, you've got to get the jetpack to the, the base of wherever it's going to fly to, and I think that's the the, the challenge at the moment, um, given how far and how tricky it is to, to get around the Lake District. Um, yeah. so, so that's probably one of the operational limitations going forward. Well, it's certainly exciting news, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, and yeah. Um, so on a personal level, Phil, we, I was just wondering what, what makes you tick? What keeps you sane? Uh, I mean, outside of work, I've uh, my partner and I, Claire, uh, we've got between us four kids. So, in fact, you said what makes us sane, actually. So, uh, they, they keep me busy. They keep me busy. Yeah, but um, yeah, I love, I, I love my home life. We uh, we all uh, we bought a, an old Victorian place about a year and a half ago, um, and and actually, before speaking to you this morning, I've been uh, doing some more DIY. It's kind of never ending. So. So that keeps me busy. Um, and my other sort of passion, I would say, is, is golf. I, I really love playing golf. And I've got a, a good so circle of friends that we uh, we enjoy that together. So, yeah, busy, I suppose. 
They're quite tame hobbies then for somebody that's an exciting, dynamic helicopter pilot. Well, I've, I think it's uh, perhaps working for the charity for eight years. I've realised that pretty much everything you do is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Even DIY, yeah. Well, I mean, a, a funny story was um, I'd probably been working for the charity about three or four years and and uh, we, we, we go to all sorts of bits and pieces. Um, and uh, I was joking and saying, you know, every time I come to work, I find something else that really we shouldn't do because it's, it's, it's dangerous. And I said that the only safe place uh, or the only safe thing perhaps to do is to, uh, to, to uh, spend your, your spare time in one of those zobbing balls. And uh, <laughs> later that afternoon, honestly, honestly, later that afternoon, a, a job came through on the radio uh, where someone had uh, twisted their neck in a zorbin ball. Luckily, they were okay, but uh, there was a degree of irony there. So. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, and what sort of kind of music do you chill out to? Uh, I, well, I listen to all sorts, really. Um, my my daughters, Charlotte and Lucy, um, we've all got uh, Spotify, uh, I suppose most people have got now. So they make uh, playlists and when I'm doing the school run, I get subjected to, to their bits and pieces, but uh, very, very diverse. I'll listen to anything, really. Uh, but I do enjoy music. I, I really love music, actually. And uh, what's football team or rugby? Which what, what, what are you? Um, I, I, I've never really been a football fan at all. I, I like uh, I like rugby. Um, I, if I was to support a team, it'd definitely be Kendall, uh, where I live. Uh, and I quite enjoy the, the sort of local derby between Kendall and Kirby Lonsdale, which on, on, on recent history, I think Kendall are not doing very well, but fingers crossed for the future. Um, but yeah, I, I like going and watching the rugby and, uh, and, and golf. I love watching golf on TV as well. <laughs> oh, that's good then. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I could ever play golf. It just sort of ruins a good walk, really. But, um... So they say. So they say. <laughs> Um, just a random question. Um, if there was one thing that you could change in this world, what would it be? Well, yeah, it's, I, I was thinking about this. I think um, on, a, on a personal level, I'd, I, I lost my parents when I was quite, well, certainly my father before I joined the army and, and my mum uh, quite a few years ago as well. So if I'd, uh, I'd, I'd have them back in the world just for a, a little period of time. Certainly, certainly my dad, because he, he didn't, uh, he, he saw me go off to join the army um, and then died very quickly uh, just after I joined the army. So he never really saw what I'd achieved. Um, so, yeah, just to have them back in the world for, for a little bit of time would be nice. Um, but perhaps on a, a less selfish point of view, I think you could... Uh, I, I used to do a lot of... Um, uh, scuba diving and I used to instruct diving and things I think the uh, the, the the sort of plight of plastic waste in the, in the ocean is is something that I, I, I feel we could all do uh, a lot more to to help with really but there you go <laughs> all right yeah I think plastic is a, is going to be the, the bugbear for all yeah. of us isn't there but going back to your dad I'm sure he's watching down on you and I'm sure he'll you know exactly what you've been up to, Phil. Oh, that's, that's very kind, yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, great blog, yeah. So um, do you have any top tips or any advice on how people can be safer when they're out walking and riding and giving you a bit of a break and not have so many helicopter rides to do a day? 
I think the I think the reality is um, actually the percentage of people. It it always amazes me actually how perhaps a busy day for us might we might get called out say two three four times. Um, but if you look at the population within our operating area, it's huge. Um, so I think the actual percentage of people that, that need our services is is very small. Uh, and I think if you're going to be worried about doing things just in case you get hurt, then I think you should forget that and just do what you enjoy. Um, do it safely and, and try and mitigate the risks a little bit, but uh, go, go and enjoy what you've got to do. <laughs> Oh, that sounds sound advice. I've actually downloaded um, the What Three Words app, um, which I think is probably quite sensible so that we, if you do need rescuing, somebody can actually get to you um, and know exactly where you are. But um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, actually, that's, uh, I mean, not just we talked about the jetpack, but there's all, there's so many little innovations that are they're helping us now with, you know, said what three words. Um, and then we even have um, if the if you called nine 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 at a scene off your mobile phone, uh, our air desk could then send a link to your phone, very similar to what we're doing now, um, but it it'd activate the camera on your phone, allowing one of our paramedics or doctors um, to to use the camera on your phone so that you could uh, show the scene um, to to help them. Uh, determine whether or not it's something that needs our aircraft. It's an app called Good Sam. People don't need to download it onto their phones, but you know, there's there's all sorts of little innovations and uh, steps forward in technology that are, uh, are really helping people. Really, so yeah, quite exciting. Okay, and will that work without a signal then? Because quite often when you're you're stuck in the Lake District, there there isn't a signal. Uh, no, that is, uh, I guess, that is one of the uh, one of the limitations um, with that that it would need a, a certainly a four G signal. Right. Okay, but it's something that's been worked on. So no, that's yeah, good. yeah. Okay. Well, we've we've probably talked for quite a while, and Bill and I've probably taken up far too much of your time. But thank you for your time today, um, even though it was your day off. Um, it was really, really interesting. And uh, hopefully our listener will have learned a great deal about amazing work both you and your team do as part of the GN Genus service. I'm yeah, sure next no. time... Sorry, I was... Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to say thank you for giving me the opportunity, really. And, and thank you to, to you and the H&H group, because as, as we, we mentioned earlier, it is all charitably funded. And, you know, w without people's help then i certainly wouldn't be doing what i'm doing and we wouldn't be delivering the pre-hospital care to people that need it so so it's people like yourselves that uh, make all this possible really well i think now that we've listened to you and um, had a bit of an insight into a day in the life i'm sure next time your distinctive green white helicopter flies overhead we will all stop for a moment hopefully and maybe give you a wave can you actually see us if we give you a wave <laughs> you, you, which, you know, I was going to say, I'll give you a wave back. It's um, I've got <laughs> you, you can do if you're looking in the right place. We've got um, I've got some some family friends called Eileen and Bernard who uh, are pretty much like uh, sort of mum and dad to me. Um, and they're, they're old now. They're in their 80s uh, and they wave at every single helicopter that goes past their garden just in case it's me. Um, yeah, no. 
Oh, and I, I always say, yes, it was me. I waved, I saw you. But uh... <laughs> well, hopefully we'll all stop for a moment now and give you that Indeed, wave. Indeed, yeah. Give you an amazing work that you do, saving so many lives. Um, we salute you, Phil. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and my honour. Thank you. Um, and just to conclude, uh, the good news here is that at H&H, we've decided to keep uh, the Great North uh, Ambulance Service as our charity for 2021 when hopefully all our planned big events will come to fruition, and we do have some, uh, and we can raise some serious amounts of money um, for this much needed service. Thank you for listening to our H&H Group podcast. You will find other interesting podcasts from around our group of companies via our website at www.hhgroupplc.co.uk. And that's it. Bye for now. <laughs>